Rogues Gallery Uncovered Bad Behaviour in Period Costume A non-judgmental poke into the scandalous lives of history's greatest libertines, Lotharios and complete bastards. This podcast contains adult themes, possibly a touch of colourful language and lots and lots of acts of brutal and senseless historical violence. That's the past for you. Conquistadora Picking fights in the sunshine with 17th century Spain's most short-tempered female adventurer, Catalina Durauso. Quickly though, before we get properly stuck in, here's the answer to the spontaneous competition that I posted last episode. It actually turns out that I think I was being a little bit too obscure for my own good, which will teach me, as the competition only had one entrant and unfortunately his answer was wrong. I asked what personal favourite 1980s UK movie I was referring to in the first few minutes of the roguish tale. The moment in question was this. A pig has defecated in my head, sir, and I only intended to partake of a few ales. And the movie was the superlative With Nail and I, which I've loved since the late 1980s. The lone entrant who deserves recognition and applause was Thomas Jensen, or is it Thomas Jensen? Sorry if I've got it wrong, who suspected that I was referring to the 1975 movie romp Royal Flash, starring Malcolm McDowell, I think. While not the correct answer, Thomas, you have potentially unleashed a whole episode dedicated to my favourite historical fictional character, Harry Paget Flashman. You've opened the floodgates, Thomas. I could go on for hours, about literally hours, about how wonderful the Flashman novels of George MacDonald Fraser are, but I'll get somewhat over-emotional. Suffice it to say that my love of history and bad behaviour stems directly from randomly picking up a copy of Flashman at the Charge at Stansted Airport sometime in the early 1980s as a somewhat moody teen about to go on his last summer holiday with his parents. I read it twice in the full two weeks we were away. In fact, I devoured it twice in the two weeks we were away. It was absolutely amazing. And then when I came home, I bought the six books, I think, that uh, preceded it uh, in one huge go. So cheers, Thomas. Flashy deserves a podcast episode all to himself, and I am working on it as we speak. Also, a disgraceful mention must go to Mira from Germany, who got in touch via the website, roguesgalleryuncovered.com, not only to say some lovely things, but also to recommend John Wilmot, 2nd Earl of Rochester, as a potential episode subject. I am way ahead of you, Mira, and he'll be featured in a couple of episodes' time for definite. And don't get me started on The Libertine, starring Johnny Depp, because there's really only so much praise I can heap in such a short amount of time. Okay then, I don't want this episode to be considered controversial, so this bit's important. The following tale is written in the present tense of the period in which it's set and as such may contain attitudes and opinions of the protagonists and their times which would today be considered unacceptable. As I am emphatically not a 17th century Spanish Catholic monk, those attitudes and opinions are obviously not mine. Peru, 1623 So you're trying to tell me that you're a woman that for the past 20 years or more, you have not been Alonso Diaz de Guzman, swordsman, duelist, soldier and swaggering Lothario, but have actually been a runaway convent girl named Catalina. 
I find this all very difficult to believe. For a start, you look nothing like a woman. In fact, you're more masculine than most of the monks in my church. You are tall and of robust build. Your hair is cut short and your sword is worn close to your body, like the conquistador you so recently claimed to have been. Your face shows none of a woman's delicate softness. You even walk and stand like a man. I can't even see a hint of your breasts, which you tell me you flattened and dried out as a young woman using a special ointment. I should accuse you of being nothing more than a lying blackguard, inventing the most outrageous falsehoods to escape justice for his many violent crimes. Such a man would dance on the end of a rope before the year was out. But the medical examination report I've just been given categorically states you are as female as my beloved mother. And not only that, but you're still a virgin. I can only imagine what His Holiness the Pope will say. You say you were born Catalina de Rauso in the Spanish town of San Sebastian some 35 years ago. One theory you propose for your martial inclinations and skill with a sword is that your father served as an officer in King Philip's army and from a very young age instructed both you and your brothers in the use of arms. However, while your brothers all went on to serve in the army, fighting for God and country in the Americas, you and your sisters were sent to be educated in the Dominican convent of San Sebastián el Antigo. Four years of age is indeed old enough to put aside childish games and embrace the disciplined life of a novice nun. By your own admission, you grew into a surly young woman, quick to anger and resentful of your confined existence. At 15, you quarrelled with another novice nun, a widow, considerably older and more muscular than yourself. You received a sound beating, and this, it seems, made you renounce the vows to God which you had until then been, albeit reluctantly, prepared to take. At midnight prayers one evening soon after, the prioress instructed you to go to her chambers and bring back her breviary. Inside her quarters, you noticed the keys to the convent hanging by a peg upon the wall and an insidious plan formed in your mind. Returning with the book, you feigned sickness and were allowed to retire to your cell. Instead of going there, you took the convent keys from their rightful place and also stole a pair of scissors, a needle, thread and some money. You then crept like a thief in the night through the deserted corridors of the convent before unlocking the main doors and fleeing into the street beyond. With no idea where you were, you hid in a chestnut grove for three days, cutting your hair in the short fashion of a young man. You also used the scissors and thread to transform your nun's habit into an approximation of male clothing, before setting off on the road to Vittoria, just another vagabond boy eating wild herbs to stay alive. In Vittoria, you had the good fortune to meet a doctor of theology who, out of the goodness of his heart, took you into his home. Such was his generosity that he provided you with a new set of clothes, he of course under the impression that you were a boy, and even began to tutor you in Latin. After three months, you say that he suggested that you remain as his student, but when you refused, he struck you. Just as you had in the convent, you then took the first available opportunity to run away from his household, after stealing from your benefactor whatever money you could find. In Valladolid, you called yourself Francisco Loyola and gained employment as a page, spending the next seven months serving the king's secretary. I was astounded to learn that at one point your father visited court asking for help in discovering your whereabouts and although you stood alone in the same room while he waited for a response, he didn't recognise you as his daughter. You, to your shame, did not reveal yourself, as the freedoms you were enjoying in the guise of a man were too intoxicating for you to risk returning to the proper and decent life of a woman. 
Racked with guilt, you fled once more, but on the road to Bilbao, you were surrounded by a gang of youths who jeered and menaced you. Picking up a rock that was lying on the ground, you struck one of the ringleaders a solid blow. He fell injured and the youths ran away. You then spent a month in jail until the lad you had struck recovered from his injuries. This was the first of many acts of violence and terms of imprisonment that you would experience in the coming years. After two years as a page in the province of Navarre, you, on a whim, returned to your hometown of San Sebastian. You say that to all its residents, you appeared to be nothing less than a well-dressed bachelor, and you even returned to the convent from which you had fled three years before. No one recognised you there either, including your own mother, whom you saw while she was taking mass. You next visited Seville, and although you found the city to be to your liking, you decided, on a whim after two days, to sign on as ship's boy for Captain Esteban Eguino. His galleon was escorting the Royal Armada to Punta de Arasa in the territory of Venezuela. It seems you were going to the Americas after all. Once in Punta de Arasa, you deserted ship before it returned to Spain, stealing 500 pesos before doing so. You then made your way to Panama, where you obtained a position with a local merchant. While you were working in his shop in the port of Pater, you were given much responsibility and several fine suits of clothes. One of your most regular customers was a wealthy woman by the name of Beatriz de Cardena, who it transpired was the merchant's mistress. If she wants to buy the whole shop, you sell it to her, he told you. Not knowing that you were also a woman, she began to entertain similarly lustful thoughts as those she had for your master. One evening at the theatre, a bombastic young man sat in front of you and blocked your view. When you asked him to move, an argument ensued, during which he threatened to cut your face wide open. Disgruntled by this, you withdrew, but the next morning you saw this same man walk past the shop. Consumed with fury, you grabbed a dagger and followed him down the street, pausing only to get it sharpened at a whetstone. Confronting him again, you reminded the fellow of his threat before slashing him across the face with the knife and stabbing his companion in the side. You then tried to claim sanctuary in a nearby church, but were dragged, again, to jail. Your master used his influence to get you released, and you returned to the safety of the church where the young man's friends couldn't take out their revenge. He then suggested that you marry his mistress, who was distantly related to the young man, as a way to ensure that you could remain in his employ. What he didn't know was that you had regularly been sneaking out of the church to pay her visits, caressing her lewdly and stoking her desire to know you carnally. In fact, so insistent did she become that you sleep with her that you say you had to slap her on to calm her down. You refused the marriage and instead went to work at another of your master's shops. But when the now scarred young man and his companions tracked you down and tried to extract their vengeance, you and a friend engaged them with swords and in the fight you ran one of them through and killed him. You would have hung there and then had not one of the deputies who arrested you been Basque and allowed you to escape. You had no other option but to flee with some money and a letter of introduction from your master to Lima in Peru. Now Lima is one of Spain's most successful colonies in the New World and you soon found employ with another wealthy merchant. After nine months however, he asked you to move on because you were becoming too friendly with his wife's sisters, one of whom had been seen sitting with your head in her lap while you ran your hands between her legs. <laughs> with neither money or friends, you signed on as a soldier joining a company which had been raised to fight in Chile. You say you had no fear of death or injury, you simply wanted to see more of the world. What more you need to see that's not inside a church, I have no idea. As luck would have it, when you arrived at the port of Concepcion, you found the officer in charge of your company to be your own brother, 
you had not seen since you were two years old. When learning where you were from, he was overjoyed and hugged you in front of all the other men, asking if you knew anything of his parents and sisters. You went on to serve in his personal unit for three years without him once suspecting who you were. He did, however, suspect that you were having relations with his mistress, and one night when he found you leaving her apartments, he struck you with his belt. Following the ensuing brawl, you once again took refuge in a church, and although your brother interceded on your behalf not to have you executed, you were banished to fight on the front line of a region that was said to be the deadliest of all in Peru, Picaba. For the next three years, you lived a life of squalor and constant danger, going from having many fine suits of clothes to spending months in the field without once taking off your armour. You fought savagely against the native Indians, slaughtering them without number from horseback and on foot. It can be said that you seemed to enjoy this life of violence and killing and became uncommonly proficient at it. Wounded in the leg while defending the company flag in battle, you were promoted to lieutenant, but missed out upon a captaincy for stringing up a fallen foe from a tree when the local governor expressly wanted him to be taken alive. Even while on leave, your behaviour would shame a savage goth. During a friendly game of cards, you became embroiled in an argument with a fellow officer who said you lied like a cuckold. Before he could put his cards back down on the table, you'd stabbed him fatally through the chest. A violent squabble broke out as the other card players attempted to restrain you, before the local judge arrived on the scene and grabbed you by the doublet, insisting that you accompany him to the local jail. In reply, you repeatedly sliced him across the face until he let you go. Drawing your sword, you then hacked your way to the local church, where you once again claimed sanctuary for the next six months. During your time under virtual siege in the church, charged with double murder, the judge having also died of his wounds, one of your friends, Juan Ponce de Leon, informed you of a duel that he was fighting that night, and asked you if you would be his second, as, there is no other man I trust at my side. Even though you had a price on your head, and your place of safety was surrounded by armed men, you still managed to sneak out to attend your friend in his affair of honour. As the duel was taking place at night, you suggested that you both tie handkerchiefs around your arms so you wouldn't mistake each other in the dark. During the duel, when your friend began to tire having taken a hit to the side, you jumped to his defence and engaged his opponent yourself, at which point the opponent's seconds also engaged you. It was only after you'd run the man through and he fell bleeding his life away on the ground that you realised that the man was in fact your brother, who had saved you from execution some years before. Returning to the sanctuary of the church, you watched some days later as his funeral procession passed by. You at least claimed to have the decency to have felt abject misery at this tragic turn of events. Your brother had named you as his killer with his dying breath, and an angry mob was all for storming the church and dragging you out, but your friend Juan repaid your loyalty to him by supplying you with a horse and some money so you could flee to the mountains. The story of your journey through the treacherous freezing peaks says to me that for some reason you certainly had the grace of God on your side. Meeting up with two fellow deserters, you made your slow, painful way across the barren and rocky wilderness, suffering from both a lack of food and water as well as the numbing cold. Seeing two men in the distance apparently laughing as they leant upon a rock, you were heartened, but your joy turned to terror when you found that both had actually frozen to death while screaming. Both your companions ultimately suffered the same fate, and you were but hours from death yourself, praying to the Almighty for, you claim, the first time in your life. 
Your prayers, it seems, were answered, for you were found just in time by two horsemen working for a local woman and taken to her hacienda. The woman took to you, as all seemed to have done, and offered you shelter and a job managing her property. You accepted, but when she tried to get you to marry her daughter, a girl you felt was both dark and ugly, you stole one of her mules and returned to your wanderings. A few months later, you claim you did much the same to a bishop's vicar general in Tucumán, romancing his niece and accepting his patronage until the marriage was all but announced, and then stealing from him and running away. You then rejoined the army and became part of an expedition to subdue the hostile Indians in the Chunchao and El Dorado regions. It must be said that you attended to your duties with your usual vigour. When, after entering a native village, your captain was shot in the eye by a terrified 12-year-old boy, you were among the men who, in your own words, cut him into 10,000 pieces before launching an attack on the village that left you literally wading in the blood of the men and women that you butchered. Was this savage response all in revenge for the actions of one terrified boy? Or did it have more to do with the fact that over 60,000 pesos worth of gold dust had been found in the huts of the village? So much, in fact, that while the massacre was taking place, you and your fellows were filling your helmets with it in order to carry it away. Prevented by your officers from panning for even more gold along the riverbanks, you and many of your brave fellow warriors deserted on the spot in disgust. I will not go into details of the time you subsequently spent working for a rich mine owner that saw you, unjustly you say, accused of disfiguring his wife while disguised as an Indian and then questioned on the rack or the quarrel you got into while playing cards in Charkas that led to you running a man through and finding sanctuary once again in a cathedral. I will not even pass comment on yet another unlawful killing you were charged with that saw you led on a horse wearing a taffeta frock through the streets to be hung, surrounded, you say, by a reign of priests. You had to stand on tiptoe, you say, while the executioner tried to tighten the noose around your throat, and such was his ineptitude you chastened him by saying, You drunk! Put it on right or don't put it on at all. How fortunate that before the deed was done you were reprieved when the character of the eyewitness who had seen you carry out the slaying was called into question and his evidence dismissed. Did this brush with both justice and death inspire you to change your ways? I suspect not. A few weeks later you claim you stabbed a man in a church with your dagger after he attacked you because he believed that you'd kidnapped his wife. What makes me furious, however, is that following yet another violent altercation, you were receiving communion in a jail cell, where else, when you suddenly spat the holy wafer into your right hand and, in a voice trembling with religious fervour, loudly cried, I call on the church, I call on the church. Thinking that you'd been touched by the Holy Spirit, you were spared punishment and taken to a place of worship. But this was in fact just another deception a cunning plan that had come to you after speaking with a pious and gullible French priest during one of your previous jail visits. Some months later, you fought the Dutch who were besieging the coast of Lima in what I believe was your first shipboard action. Again, you escaped death by a hair's breadth, surviving when over 900 other sailors perished. Perhaps you then felt invincible, like Achilles of old. But pride, as you know, is a sin and I have no doubt that God sought to remind you of this when he brought into your wastrel life a vicious brute who others called the Cid. At a card game in Cusco, this well-known killer of men who felt he could do as he pleased to whoever he pleased began to take fistfuls of your winnings in full view of everyone. This behaviour would make even the gentlest of men bristle with anger, let alone a stab-happy harridan with a non-existent fuse. The third time he did it, 
you pinned his hand to the table with your dagger. In the struggle that followed, of course, you found the Cid to be not only a powerful and skilled swordsman unlike any you had fought before, but also that he was trussed up in armour like a brass timepiece. Your every thrust was turned by this steel carapace, and as the fight spilled into the street, he ran you through the shoulder. Desperately trying to find an opening in his armour, you fought as you had never fought before, but to no avail. Another thrust pierced your side and you collapsed, blood pouring from your body, but still you fought on. As the Cid knelt above you to deliver the final blow, you found a gap between his armour and his body and slid your blade between. He collapsed next to you, the pool of his own lifeblood mingling with yours. Such was the severity of your injuries that the officers who came to arrest you instead called for a priest to hear your final confession. When you told the friar who came to hear it your secret, he took you to a monastery where you could be attended by a surgeon, leaving the evil Cid to bleed to death in the street. Awake throughout your surgery, you felt every cut, tug and stitch, but you survived, and after five days began to think that you might not be ready to meet your creator just yet. You could not stay in Cusco, however, and left with Law and the Cid's friends out for your blood. Your cares were piling up, you said, like flies on meat. After a succession of narrow and violent escapes, you arrived in Guamanga, where, in a gambling house, you were recognised and approached by some constables who drew swords and pistols and bid you surrender. You responded in kind and cut and shot two of them down. Surrounded in the street, there were multiple cries for your death. Finally, the justice of the Lord was about to be visited upon you. From my palace opposite, however, I had watched the confrontation, and wishing to avoid further bloodshed, I stepped into the line of fire and offered you safe arrest if you gave up your weapons. Thankfully you agreed, and despite the most passionate protests of the assembled constables and their slaves, I led you to my house and treated your wounds. What I saw was a cunning, venal, arrogant braggart of a man, who brawled and killed without compunction and who thought of no one else's profit but their own, a disgrace to their sex. I doubted you would evade justice for long, and I suspect neither did you, for the next morning you did something that perhaps you had not done since you were a child. You told the truth. The truth is this, you said, that I am a woman, that I was born in such and such a place, the daughter of this man and this woman, that at a certain age I was placed in a certain convent with a certain aunt, that I was raised there and took the veil and became a novice, and that when I was about to profess my final vows, I left the convent for such and such a reason went to such and such a place, undressed myself and dressed myself up again, cut my hair, travelled here and there, embarked, disembarked, hustled, killed, maimed, wreaked havoc, and roamed about until coming to a stop in this very instance at the feet of your eminence. You are, I have to say, one of the most remarkable women in the world to have done and seen all that you have and to have suffered so much. It fills my heart with joy that you appear to be genuinely remorseful of your violent, dissolute life and wish to spend the remainder of your days from now on praising him who made all things. I shall offer you more than safety. I shall provide you with entry to a local nunnery, where you can prove your devotions, and from there you may return to Spain, where, no doubt, you shall be fated and held as an object of curiosity and wonder. Perhaps you shall meet the king. Perhaps you will even journey to Rome and meet His Holiness the Pope. I hope this newfound honesty and piety is not just another strategy to avoid facing any responsibility for your actions. Why are you smiling? Catalina de Rousseau wasn't the first woman to dress up as a man so she could join the army. In the 15th century, a woman by the name of Oronata Rondiani killed a man in self-defence and, after adopting a male identity, joined a band of mercenaries, 
staying with them until she died alongside some of them in battle. In the early 18th century, you had Hannah Snell, who joined the British Army as a man to look for her wayward husband. She actually stayed on after finding out that he had been executed for murder, and when she finally left the Royal Marines, she became a celebrity. Later on in the 18th century, there was Deborah Sampson, who fought against the Brits in the American War of Independence under the name Robert Shirtliffe. She was, in the end, honourably discharged and she got a pension. Jean-Louise Antione fought in the French army in the Napoleonic Wars of the early 1800s and she was wounded nine times, but still somehow managed to fool her superiors into letting her stay in the ranks, which as far as I'm concerned is some pretty slapdash doctoring. And while we're on the subject of all things medical, there's James Barry, who was actually born Margaret Ann Bulkley, but pretended to be a man in order to study medicine at university, and when she graduated, went on to join the army as a surgeon. Her sex was only discovered once she died in 1865. As for how much of Catalina's story is true, like a lot of these dramatic tales, you have to take a fair amount of it with huge pinches of salt. That she really existed and fought with the Spanish army isn't in doubt. It transpires that she actually obtained permits from both King Philip IV and Pope Urban VIII to live out the rest of her life as a man, so she obviously made quite an impression. She was almost certainly the inspiration for the play The Lieutenant Nun in 1625. However, much of the detail in her story is believed to be part of an 18th or early 19th century invention by money-grabbing hacks trying desperately to make a quick buck after Lord Byron made Spanish adventuring fashionable with his poem Don Juan. Byron, by the way, is up for an episode or two as well. Whatever the facts, Catalina was indeed a remarkable individual that I certainly wouldn't have liked to have gotten on the wrong side of. Next time on Rogue's Gallery Uncovered, and as a tribute to Harry Flashman, the ups and downs of a gentleman rotter. Charming rogue, nasty pervert, tragic bullshit artist. You decide. The outrageous comings and goings of Edward Sellen, officer, gentleman and specialist author. <sighs> I'm spent. Don't forget to visit roguesgalleryuncovered.com where you can sign up and become a lovable rogue or you can follow the podcast on social media. I can be found loitering around on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Send any and all roguish suggestions or comments about the podcast to simon at roguesgalleryonline.com. The address is in the show notes. Have a great fortnight, stay roguish, and I'll see you yesterday. <laughs>